Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, early in the second century, there was a man who came to prominence. His name was Marcion of Sinope. And he argued that Christians ought to just dispense with the entirety of the Old Testament. The thinking was, we have Jesus, we have the new covenant, we have got the new dispensation. We do not need all of that Old Testament stuff anymore. Marcion, he's the father of Marcionism, which is a heresy. Here's a point of uh, interest for us, that if you ever start a heresy, they're going to name it after you, okay? So intellectual figures, great saints, church fathers like St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, St. Hippolytus, notice how they all have saint in front of their name, and Marcion doesn't. These fellows, they wage intellectual war against Marcion and this heretical view. Why? Because we absolutely need the Old Testament. We absolutely need the background to understand the foreground. We absolutely need this historical context. We need the old covenant to understand the new. As St. Augustine said, the old, the new is contained in the old and the old is fulfilled by the new. We need them both. In recent decades, thanks to the scholarship of uh, some amazing biblical scholars in our own country, I'm thinking of Scott Hahn, John Bergsma, Brant Petrie, just to name a few, this view, this resurgence of uh, curiosity in biblical studies, especially Jewish studies, has really come to the fore. Brant Petrie in particular, I just want to point him out, he's written a number of books, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. Beautiful books. They'd be great Christmas gifts. I have them already. Don't buy them for me, okay? So that's a little bit of what I want to touch on. I want to dive into tonight on this second Sunday of Advent, and this homily is going to be a bit more... um, Uh, nerdy, if you will, a little bit more scholastic. I want to give us a little intellectual deep dive on this Saturday night because it's so important for us to grasp. In order for us to grasp what God did for us, we have to begin by understanding that Christ and the incarnation was not, it was not an idea that the Trinity kind of, you know, they did a think tank. They're like, well, what should we do? How about incarnation? No, no, no. This was not out of the blue. This was something that was the flowering of centuries of preparation. It was the fulfillment of promises and covenants and hopes and expectations and dreaming of the day when God would finally restore all things and set things right. There's a very rich and a very real and a very historical context that we ought to know that would help us in an incredible way to have a fuller appreciation of these mysteries, in particular the mystery of Christmas that we're preparing to celebrate. So let's start with this. Let's start with this. Advent, as we all know, is a season of waiting, of waiting. But what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? The church teaches us that we are spiritually placing ourselves back in the posture of ancient Israel, awaiting the coming of the Messiah. This is from the Catechism, paragraph 524 can jot that down. I see we all brought our journals to Mass. Cool. Paragraph 524. When the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent each year, she makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renew their ardent desire for his second coming. 
by celebrating John the Baptist's birth and martyrdom, the church unites herself to his desire. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's paragraph 524. Okay, so who or what, we should say, were the Jews expecting? We're entering into their longing, their expectancy. What were they waiting for? The main figure that they were waiting for was a new David, a new David. David, who was the great king, the prototypical king, he reigned from about 1010 B.C. to about 970 B.C. His descendants, they reigned, his, the Davidic kingdom, it reigned until about 586 B.C. until the Babylonian exile. After that, the Jews began to return from the exile around the year 537. And after their return, no king from the line of David appears again. It's a big problem. And the Persians do not allow them to set a son of David on the throne. However, despite that, the prophets of the Old Testament said that he would come back. There would be a new David. This is what we hear in the first reading we have this evening for Mass from Isaiah chapter 11. It's a very classical Christmas reading. We're so used to it. But this is at the heart of Israelite hope. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which is a beautiful poetic way of referring. Jesse, of course, was David's father. Say the stump of Jesse. It's a reference to the Davidic kingdom that has been cut down since 586. Okay, a shoot shall spring up from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. A little Hebrew for us tonight. The word branch in Hebrew is netzer. Netzer. That's the root of the name of the town, Netzereth. Anybody want to guess what that is in English? Nazareth. Nazareth. If Netzereth was really rendered into English, it would... It would more appropriately be like Branch or Branchton. Jesus was from a little town called Branchton. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. So, and it's so poetically beautiful, of course, right? Jesus, who is from Branchton, from Nazareth, from Nazareth, is himself the branch that blossoms from the stump of Jesse, right? Or Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah, chapter 23, verse 5, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. There's that word netzer again. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is so significant because this figure, this branch from the stump of Jesse, this new Davidic king, like he will bring into Israel, he will bring to this earth the presence of God himself. Like, this is one of those prophecies that just hangs out there, and I'm sure the rabbis were like, we can't even fathom what that means, that God himself will reign. We have no clue what that means. So the people of Israel, they were waiting for the son of David as prophesied by the prophets, and some among the Jews were very, very, very serious about waiting for this anointed one, this royal son of David, a group known as the Essenes. The Essenes. Now, most of us as Christians, as Catholics, we're familiar with two of the three major branches of Judaism that were prominent in Jesus' day. We're familiar with the Sadducees, familiar with the Pharisees, because both of those groups are mentioned in the Gospels, but we're much less familiar with this other group who they called themselves the Israelites. But outsiders, they refer to them as the Essenes. They are the ones who left us the Dead Sea Scrolls, which you might have heard of. It was an 
unbelievable archaeological discovery from the 1940s. These three Bedouin shepherd children skipped school one day, and like Bedouin shepherd children are wont to do, they were grabbing rocks and chucking them into caves along the, along the shore of the Dead Sea. They're throwing these rocks into these caves. All of a sudden, one of the boys throws a rock, and it smashes this clay jar. And they're like, that's an unusual sound for a cave. So they go in, and they investigate, and they find all these scrolls hidden in these jars. These jars contained thousands of manuscripts from an ancient monastic library, a community of Jewish monastics, the Essenes, who lived in this region around the Dead Sea in this area called Qumran. So the Essenes, they were a branch of Judaism that stressed intense personal holiness, intense asceticism. They practiced celibacy. They accepted all sorts of different inspired books. They were renowned and respected for their holiness. They really kept to themselves, and they expected the Messiah's coming very soon. And they regarded the temple as defiled, which is why they were found out in the desert, not in Jerusalem. They rejected the temple. So these famous Dead Sea Scrolls. In their community rule that was discovered in one of these Dead Sea Scrolls, they are referencing again and again and again and again Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where we hear this. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This was their theological justification for what they were doing out in the desert. They were spiritually preparing the way of the Lord who was going to come from the east. So you go to Jerusalem, you go east, dead east, you're going to run into the, the Qumranites, the Essenes, and this monastery. Okay, so we live Advent as essentially a four-week liturgical season, but the Essenes in this monastic community out in the desert, they lived Advent as a lifestyle. It was their entire life. They were praying together, studying the scriptures together, especially the prophet Isaiah. He's the most cited prophet in the Dead Sea Scrolls because he's speaking about, over and over again, Isaiah is speaking about the age to come, the messianic ha'olam, the messianic day of the Lord. Like during Advent, our weekday masses in this year, we're going to hear over and over again in the daily masses from the prophet Isaiah. Okay, how are we doing so far? We're we good? Good, okay, because I got a lot more. Here we go. So at this point, possibly percolating in the back of your mind, you might be thinking, this all reminds me a little bit about John the Baptist. And if that's you, you get a gold star. You'd be 100% right. You'd be right to make that connection. It's not an accident that we have this first reading paired with this gospel. Because John, when he's asked to identify himself, he cites Isaiah 43, 40 verse 3. The verse that is the essential identity verse for the Qumranites. I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. This is not a coincidence. Not at all. John the Baptist and the Essenes in the time of first century Judaism, John the Baptist and the Essenes were the only ones. They were the only ones who were associating themselves with Isaiah 40 verse 3. The Pharisees had nothing to do with it. The Sadducees had nothing to do with it. It was John the Baptist and the Essenes. This is significant. This is highly significant. Both of them, John the Baptist and the Essenes, were performing these elaborate water washings near the Jordan River and a whole lot of other practices in common as well. So what's the connection between these two? Well, John the Baptist was probably raised by the Essenes. He was probably an Essene monk, which makes a lot of sense out of Luke Chapter 1, verse 30, where we hear John was in the wilderness until he began his public ministry. It's a really odd verse when you think about it. 
like you got Elizabeth and Zechariah. They got their three-year-old John. They're like, okay, John, time to go out into the wilderness. Here the bugs and honey are pretty good. Like, good luck. No, no, no. This, this, this makes so much more sense. Like the Roman historian Josephus, he says that the Essenes, they lived in the desert and they raised and they formed young Jewish boys in their community, in their manners, he says. Just like in the medieval days, you'd have, you know, noble families sending their sons to live with monastic communities like the Benedictines, hoping that one day their son would be a Benedictine abbot. It's just like that. You send your son to live with the Essenes. We also observe the oddity of John the Baptist, right? He's wearing crazy things and he's eating crazy things. And we just tend to think, well, he was just probably a crazy guy. Okay, there's a little bit more to it, a little bit more to it. Josephus, again, he tells us that when the monks of the Essene community were excommunicated, when they were kicked out, they often starved to death. Why? Why? Because when they made their final vows, they swore to never eat any food that was not prepared by the community. There's a loophole, though. They were allowed to eat food that just naturally occurred in the wild, a la honey and locusts. Okay. It seems that John got himself kicked out of the monastery. How about that, folks, huh? He got himself booted out of seminary. Makes sense, right? He's practicing a water washing like the monks, and that's associated with the Holy Spirit. And the monks in the Qumran community, they thought that the Holy Spirit had already come. That's what they taught. John, though, he's very clear that the Holy Spirit has not yet come. That's what we hear in this gospel today. That when the Messiah comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with fire. It's likely, it's arguable, that John and the Qumranites got into a debate about this. And this was part of the points that got him kicked out of the monastery. Also, we understand that John was preaching salvation to everybody. He was proclaiming this gospel message of repentance to everybody that he wanted this broad audience, that when you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, you hear that the monks, they refused to preach to anybody outside of their community. So we, what do we find John the Baptist doing? He's preaching to everyone. He's preaching even to the Roman soldiers, the tax collectors, the Pharisees. What we see is John had so imbibed the, the vision of Isaiah, who has this vision that Israel is meant to go out to all the nations, that the saving love of the God of Israel is meant to extend to the Gentiles as well. And here's John the Baptist saying, I'm preaching to everybody. I'm preaching to everybody. What does he do when he gets kicked out? He goes up to the fords of the Jordan River by Jericho, which is the, like it's where the crossing of all these trade routes occurred. Like everybody from everywhere had to pass by this spot. All the trade routes, the silk merchants, the spice merchants, everybody came through that spot. It'd be like setting up shop in O'Hare Airport. Right? Like, everybody's passing through. You can preach to the whole world just by standing by Cinnabon. Okay? So that's what John the Baptist is doing. He was so effective in his preaching that later, even in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, we hear decades after John has already died, decades after he has died, we encounter these disciples of John the Baptist. They, these disciples of John the Baptist as far away as western Turkey. That's a good distance away. Okay, let me land this plane for us tonight. Okay, I want to try and make little connections here. So during Advent, the church is inviting us to enter into the longing of Israel, the longing of Israel. And she's teaching us 
by inviting us to sit with John the Baptist. It's to, to sit with John the Baptist for two whole Sundays. Half of Advent is dedicated to John the Baptist. He's so significant. If you don't know the Baptist, you're not going to know the Christ. You have to know the Baptist, is what the church is saying. This ex-monk desert dweller guy. So the question that must be asked is, why? Because the church is telling us that the one who came 2,000 years ago, the one who comes upon our altars, and the one who is to come in glory, is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God made to Israel. He's the fulfillment of all the promises. Which promises? So many. But for our purposes tonight, the one that we hear about in the first reading from Isaiah, we hear about the wolf being a guest of the lamb. Are wolves and lambs typically hanging out together? No. No. We hear about the leopard lying down with the kid, the cow and the bear, so on and so forth, right? This vision of creation being reconciled, this vision of peace ensuing, this Edenic vision that the original plan in the beginning that got destroyed by sin is going to be pieced back together, is what we're hearing. It's this image of total restoration, an image of total rectification, that everything is going to be set right. Everything. All divisions will cease. Like the one who came and the one who is to come is going to heal every division. Like, imagine that. Like, whew, I don't know about you, but I need that. Like, I need that in myself. I need that in my family. I need that amongst my community. We need that in this country. We need that in this world. And the crazy part is, he's already begun the restoration. Like, the Edenizing of fallen creation has already begun. It's already breaking in. It's already and it's not yet. This new creation, every tear will be wiped away. All the evil will be dealt with. All the suffering will be dealt with. We're just so used to thinking that this is just how things are. This is how things have been. This is how things will always be. And the answer that the scriptures give us, that John the Baptist gives us, is no. That the Bible, the God of the Bible, who became flesh in Jesus Christ, is a God who keeps his promises. All of them. Amen. Amen.